our God is indeed an awesome God, and we'll talk about that in this psalm this morning. I do want to give you a quick health update on me. Had a lot of people ask me last Sunday if I was feeling bad, if I was sick, if I was, if something was wrong, because I preached for 27 minutes last week. Just to reassure you, I was fine, but since you were so insistent, we'll go an hour and a half today and balance it out. Not really, but uh, some of you really thought I was sick, and I wanted to let you know I was not. I just said what I had to say, and I sat down. It's a pretty good preacher plan. I got a lot to say today, so I'll just warn you about that. I do want to remind you as we come to the Lord's table today, as we always do as Grace Baptist Church, after the Lord's table, we'll take a special offering we call our Karis offering. And the offering usually goes to meet internal needs, people who have uh, internal financial needs, and we meet that within the church. But for the last couple of years, or three years or so, on this particular day, if the Karis offering has been healthy, and it is healthy right now, we have designated this Sunday's offering to go to the uh, Oneida Bible Institute, which is a ministry of, KB, of the Kentucky Baptist Convention, which we have a very special place in our heart for. And so today, the Karis offering for Grace members, that's all this is for, really. After the service, as you go out, ushers will be there with uh, uh, receptacles to receive that Karis offering, and it will go to Oneida Bible Institute today. Take your Bibles and turn with me to Psalm 66. Psalm 66. This is one of the psalms that have been called the uh, praise psalms because they're just filled with praise to God. It's a psalm that, that is a little different from many of them in that many of the psalms will start out very, very individualistic, very personalized with the psalmist writing about what God is doing in his life, and then it will move to a broader sense of the nation or the, or the people of God and then the nation. This one is just the opposite. The psalmist starts out broadly, oh, oh Oh, bless the Lord, or shout for joy to, the, to God, all the earth. He begins very broadly, and he draws it down very narrowly. Uh, Derek Kidner, in his little commentary on the Psalms, uh, titled this psalm, and I liked the title, God of all, of many, of one. Because he starts out in a very universal sense, talking about God rules and reigns over all of his earth, he is the creator God. He is the sustainer God. And then he comes down and he closes it down closer to the people of God. Uh, Israel, in, in the psalmist's case, the, the church, I think, in our case, he brings in the people of God, those who are called by God, redeemed by God, set free by God, as we talk about our chains being broken in that song just a few minutes ago. And then he comes down to his own personal encounter with God. He, he gives his personal testimony, if you will about the mighty deeds that God has done and is doing in his life. And so there's a call here to us as we hear this psalm, as we prepare to come to the Lord's table, there's a call here to us to consider those things, our responsibility to the world, our responsibility to one another in the body of Christ, and our responsibility to stand before God as an individual, called by his name, redeemed by his name, and given life in his name. In Charles Spurgeon's work, three-volume work on the Psalms called The Treasury of David, so, uh, they, uh, uh, Spurgeon would always list at the end of the, his exposition of that psalm what he called suggestions or recommendations for the village preacher. 
Now, I'm not sure who he thought of as the village preacher, but I guess it's any preacher who reads uh, this particular book that he wrote on the various Psalms. And under Psalm 66, one of his recommendations for the village preacher was, read this Psalm on Easter Sunday. Read this Psalm on Easter Sunday. And and I I would think that while we're not reading, I wish I'd have known that Easter, we'd have read it Easter, but but he said, do that. It's been the, the practice of many churches throughout the generations, throughout the centuries, because it talks about the mighty deeds of God, and there is no greater mighty deed of God than what took place on Easter Sunday. When Jesus came forth out of the grave, when after being crucified, dead and buried, he rose again from the dead, putting the death on the cross to death and coming alive that we may live in him. So there really is a a legitimate reason for this to be considered something of a resurrection psalm or an Easter psalm. But it's also a good psalm to think about as we come to the Lord's table. Because the Lord's table is reminding us of that death, that burial, and that resurrection. And of all the deeds that God has done, and the psalmist will list a couple in here that his people ought to be praising God for, of all the deeds that God has done in all of human history for thousands of years, there is none greater, none more important, and none that we ought to focus on any more than the resurrection of Christ. That, as the song we sang, I love these songs we sang, that said on that morning when he breathed again, that morning was the morning that sealed the promise, the promise of eternal life, the promise of Messiah being who he said he was. On that morning when his body began to breathe and he came forth out of that grave, that sealed the promise that had been made to you and me by Christ, by God throughout all the generations, by Christ in his earthly ministry, that if you tear down this temple, you may destroy it, but in three days I will raise it up again, and in three days I will come forth from the grave, and in three days I will live again so that you might live, is the is the purpose of understanding that hear the psalmist in psalm 66 follow along as i read the psalm in its entirety shout for joy to god all the earth sing the glory of his name give to him glorious praise say to god how awesome are your deeds so great is your power that your enemies come cringing to you All the earth worships you and sings praises to you. They sing praises to your name. Now that may sound like a little strange verse there, but we'll talk about the importance of it in a minute. Verse 5, come and see. Come and see what God has done. He is awesome in his deeds toward the children of man. He, He turned the sea into dry land. They passed through the river on foot. There did we rejoice in him who rules by his might forever, whose eyes keep watch on the nations. Let not the rebellious exalt themselves. There's the world. There's the universal aspect of this. Not universalism, but the universal aspect of it. Then verse 8, he draws it a little closer. Bless our God. The first part is bless God, all the nations, just pointing to him. Now he personalizes it among the people. Bless our God, O peoples. Let the sound of his praise be heard, who has kept our soul among the living and has not let our feet slip. For you, O God, have tested us. 
You have tried us as silver is tried. You brought us into the net. You laid a crushing burden on our backs. You let men ride over our heads. We went through fire and through water. Yet you have brought us out to a place of abundance. Wow. This is what you've done for your people. Then verse 13 through 20, he turns it personal and he gives what I would call his personal creed. He says, I will come. I will come into your house with burnt offerings. I will perform my vows to you, that which my lips uttered and my mouth promised when I was in trouble. I will offer to you burnt offerings of fattened animals with the smoke of the sacrifice of rams. I will make an offering of bulls and goats, costly thing. Come and hear. Come and hear all you who fear God. And I will tell you what he has done for my soul. I cried to him with my mouth, and high praise was on my tongue. If I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. But truly, God has listened. He has attended to the voice of my prayer. Blessed be God, because he has not rejected my prayer or removed his steadfast love from me. God of all, God of many, and God of one, as Kidner says. It's exactly what the psalmist wants us to see here. He starts out by calling the nations to shout for joy to God. All the earth, all around, sing the glory of his name. Give him glorious praise. And that's our call to the world. Our call to the world as the people of God in the church of Jesus Christ in the 21st century is to go out into all the world, into all the hedges and highways and, and hidden places and say, you should praise the Lord. You should see his mighty works. Psalm 19 says the whole, the whole creation declares the glory of God. Everywhere you look, whether it's the beauty of the sunset or the gloriousness of the sunrise, whether it's the storms during the day or the night, whether it's the sun that shines warmly upon our bodies when we're out walking, wherever it is, we ought to see the glory of God, and everybody ought to see it. Paul said in Romans 1 that everyone is without excuse because they see that glory every single day. And, and to turn against it, to say, I refuse to hear it, to say, I refuse to acknowledge that God created all that there is, and to say, oh, it must be some cosmic accident of some sort, is to rebel against him. As a matter of fact, Paul, uh, uh, the psalmist says there in, in verse 7, the last part, said, let not the rebellious exalt themselves. But that's exactly what happens. When a man or woman refuses to exalt God as God, when they refuse to see him as the sovereign one, not only of all creation, not only of the church, but also of their lives, when they're rebellious against God and God's truth, they exalt themselves. They become idolaters. They worship themselves. They worship their desires. They worship what they think they ought to have and, and what they insist upon having in this life. And the psalmist says, don't exalt yourselves in the midst of your rebellion. You ought to be praising God. You ought to be crying out to God. You ought to be acknowledging who he is and what he is and that he reigns. 
You ought to be singing to the glory of his name. You ought to be giving him glorious praise. You ought to say to God, how awesome are your deeds. I love that the psalmist here understands the significance of the word awesome. Only attached to God, only attached to his deeds, anywhere in scripture. You'll never see him talking about an awesome king or an awesome nation or an awesome blessing of any kind unless it comes strictly from the hand of God because that word ought to be reserved for God and his deeds but the psalmist says how awesome are your deeds how great are your deeds they are beyond anything I can imagine I stand in awe of you we sang that also today if you noticed I stand in awe of you because of your awesomeness because of your greatness he says in verse 4 that all the earth worships you and sings praises to you. They sing praises to your name. Now it's easy for us to look around and say, well, I don't see that. The psalmist says, all the earth worships you? Well, I I see people that don't worship you. I see people that reject you. I see people that rebel against you. How can the psalmist say, all the earth worships you? Do you realize that according to the word of God, that even those who rebel against him in their own way, are worshiping, are pointing toward worship of the living God? You ever wonder why the atheist is so angry? Why the atheist gets so upset that, that they don't want any mention of God or any acknowledgement of God anywhere? They want it stripped away, torn away, completely obliterated. I often ask people who are atheists, why are you so angry about somebody that you say doesn't exist? It's because even their anger points to the worship of God. Even their rebellion points to the worship of God. Even their their refusal to acknowledge anything about him points to God as being gracious and glorious. But they want no part of it and no part of him because they want to be their own sovereign. They want to rule in their own life. They want to take control of everything there is. So to them, the psalmist says, come and see what God has done. Come and see that he is awesome in his deeds toward the children of man. That's toward everybody on the face of the earth. That's Jesus' word, you know, the, the rain falls on the just and the unjust. God's goodness, God's deeds are, are pleasurable even to those who don't acknowledge him. They still benefit from some common grace in this world. Come and see what God has done. Basically, the psalmist is saying this, open your eyes and look. Open your eyes and look at what is around you. I mean, don't close your eyes to the truth and the clarity of what God has done and is doing. Come and see what God has done. Then he just lists a few things. He turned the sea into dry land. Thinking back to the Exodus. When the, when the Israeli, uh, excuse me, the Egyptian army was after the Israelites and pressing down upon him, he, he parted the Red Sea and the land was dry and the people went right through. And when they got through and the Egyptian army got in, it came back and destroyed them because of their arrogance. It's saying you can go and then chasing them down. It was beautiful. They, but, the, but the children of Israel went through on dry land. What a glorious deed. What an awesome deed. They passed through, they, they tur- he turned the sea into dry land. And they passed through the river on foot there at the end of the Exodus. 
as they wandered in the wilderness for all those years and getting ready to go in the promised land, the river Jordan was parted and dried and they walked through the river on foot. There did we rejoice in him. There was no sadness. There was no doubt in in who God was when they went through the river, when they went through the sea. We rejoiced in him, the psalmist said, because he rules by his might. He keeps his eyes watch on the nations. Let not the rebellious exalt themselves. It's the universal aspect of God's revelation of himself. Then there's among the people of God. In verses 8 through 12, bless our God, praise our God, O peoples. Let the sound of his praise be heard. Don't keep it quiet. One of the real attributes of the church of Jesus Christ in the the 21st century ought to be an attribute of praise and worship and glorifying His name. There ought to be the sound of His praise being heard all across this land, not only when we're gathered in corporate worship like we are here, but when we scatter. We ought to let the sound of His praise be heard through our voices. He kept our soul among the living, He's not let our feet slip. He protected us, and he does protect us. Now, the psalmist says this, you did test us. You did let us go through some struggles. You you did let us suffer just a bit, and you could almost think that the psalmist here might be complaining a little bit, but he's not. He says, you you tested us, O God. You you have tried us as silver is tried in the the heat, in the fire. You, You brought us into the net and you laid crushing burden on our backs. There in Egypt and other places, during other times of of scattering, other times of, of being exiled into captivity. You laid a crushing burden on our backs. You let men ride over our heads. That is a phrase that comes right out of the the warfare that day. And it it carries with the picture of men on on horses riding across the, the other army. And the horses crushing their heads. They are ruling over them. They are controlling them. They are in absolute power over them. You did all this. We went through fire and we went through water. Silver is tested by fire. Other things are cleansed by water. He said, you you test us with fire, you put us in the smelting furnace so that all that was dross would burn away and only pure silver would come out. And and through water you washed us and you cleansed us and, and you kept us in your name. He says to that, you have brought us yet. You have brought us out to a place of abundance. He's not complaining, folks. He's not saying he, that the people of God enjoyed the exile, he not enjoyed the captivity, but he's saying no matter where we went, no matter what we experienced, no matter how great our pain was, you were with us. 
You were protecting us. You didn't let our feet slip. You, you kept our soul among the living. God, in the middle of testing, in the middle of trials, you have been our refuge. It's no different today than it was in the psalmist day. For we who know God will not be spared of difficult times. We who walk with Christ will not be protected from, from having any kind of adversity in our life. But we do have the assurance that Jesus said, I will go with you and I'll never leave you or forsake you. I'll always be with you, even until the end of the age. I'm there with you in the fire. And the fire is just to make you stronger. The the trial is just to not show God if we have faith or not. He knows that. But it's to show us how strong our faith is and to strengthen our faith and to build our faith. People of God, bless, praise our God. And then verses 13 through 20, he comes to his personal creed. In the first three verses, 13 through 15, he he speaks to God. He said, I will come to your house. I will come into your house with burnt offerings. I will perform my vows to you, that which my lips uttered and my mouth promised when I was in trouble. I will offer to you burnt offerings of fattened animals with smoke of the sacrifice of rams. I will make an offering of bulls and goats. Now, obviously, he's he's talking in an old covenant terminology. He's speaking of a time in which he's living where the sacrifices are still being offered and still pointing to Christ every single time. Now, we live in a day where the sacrifice, the ultimate sacrifice, the only sacrifice, the final sacrifice has been made. That which we will think about in a moment when we come to this table. But he says, listen, I will keep my vows. I will perform my vows. I I will do what my lips uttered and my mouth promised. When? When I was in trouble. When I was in trouble. Reminds me of Martin Luther Remember, we talked about that during our talk about the Reformation a couple of years ago and and what took place in the Reformation. But Martin Luther was studying law, and and he was preparing for for a legal profession. His father was very proud of that and loved that. And one day as he was walking back to his residence from, from his school, he got caught in a thunderstorm, and he hid under a tree. Now, that wasn't real smart. We know that today very well. But he he gathered up close to a tree, and lightning struck close by. And Martin Luther fell out on his face before before God in one sense, but he cried out to St. Anne, St. Anne, save me, and I will become a monk. Well, that wasn't a... A, he was praying to the wrong person, and two, he was making foolish vows to some degree, but he went through with them. He told his father, I told... I told St. Anne, and, and St. Anne told God in, that, in his view at that particular time. He changed that view. But, but St. Anne told God that if I would be spared my life in this thunderstorm, then I would become a monk, and I'm going to become a monk. And he became a monk as much as he could. He said, if anybody were ever saved by their monkery, it would have been me. He did everything he could until he came to realize that his vows 
futile. That his salvation, his soul, his deliverance, his protection rested in the finished work of Christ. And trusting in him, not in saints, not in, not in relics, not in self-flagellation, but in Christ and Christ alone. The psalmist said, though, I will worship you. I'm going to come into your house and I'm going to worship you as best I can. And then the psalmist gives his testimony. He says, come and hear all you who fear God. He's talking to the people of God again. You notice back up in verse eight, uh, verse 5, rather, he said, come and see what God has done, calling out to the nations. Now he's calling out to those who have a common experience with him. He says, come and hear all you who fear God, and I will tell you what he has done for my soul. He did great things for the nation and bringing them out of, out of slavery and through the Red Sea and through the Jordan River and he brought them into the land of abundance. But, but here's what he's done for my soul. I cried to him with my mouth and high praise was on my tongue. When I cry out to him, he gives me that desire to praise him all the more, worship him all the more. When I'm spending time alone with God, my heart is, my heart is kindled for worship. That's what the psalmist is saying. I cried out to him in my mouth and high praise was on my tongue. If I had cherished or if I had concealed or if I had hidden iniquity, that is sin, in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. And what he's saying there is you can't hide it from God. You can't hide those secret sins that you hide from your husband or your wife or your children or your parents or your friends. You can hide them from them. You can't hide them from God. He said, if I'd cherished them, if I'd hidden them, if I'd, if I'd thought they were the most important things, if I'd treasured them in my heart, the Lord would not have listened to me. But truly, God has listened. He has attended to the voice of my prayer. When I cried out to him for salvation, he heard me. He restored my soul. He gave me life. Blessed be God. Praise be God. Verse 20, last verse. Because he has not rejected my prayer or removed his steadfast love from me. His grace. He's not removed his grace. He's not removed his love. He's not rejected my prayer, not because I'm a great saint, but because he's a great God. When we come to this table, we come seeing that those sacrifices that he talked about earlier of of fatted animals, rams and bulls and goats and sheep and pigeons and doves and everything else that were offered through the years, that all of those sacrifices were pointing to what the sacrifice that this table represents. It's pointing to the sacrifice of Christ. It's pointing to the fact that he became our sacrifice and our substitute so that, his, so that he could redeem us. And as I said earlier in my prayer, that he could cover us with his righteousness and forgive us 
of our sins. When we come to this table, coming out of this understanding of the psalmist here, when he's just glorifying in the mighty, awesome, beautiful, exciting, glorious deeds of God, what we have to see is that this is God's deed on our behalf. He never led us through a Red Sea. He, he never took us across a river on dry land on foot. He never did all, a lot of those things in the, that we see in the New Testament that Christ did that were signs of his Messiahship. But folks, what we have is the greatest sign, the greatest mark, the greatest expression of his power, his grace, and his love in the cross and the resurrection. The psalmist says, I cried out to him and he heard me. And this morning, if you're not in Christ, if you don't know Christ as Lord and Savior, that's the key. Just cry out to him, Lord, I need you. Lord, I want you. Not for the abundance, not for the blessings. I want you for who you are. I want to know you. I want to, I want to be in your presence. I want to sense your mighty deeds through the resurrection and the cross in my life. As we come to this table, this is a table of thanksgiving. This is a table of remembrance. This is a table that points to what Christ has done, but also is to be done regularly by the body of Christ, pointing to the fact that he's coming again. He has done his work. He has redeemed his people. And he's coming again. And we come to this table rejoicing in his grace, rejoicing in his glory, and speaking that grace and that glory to a world that needs to hear it, and speaking it to one another that we might strengthen one another, that we might encourage one another, that we might build one another up in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Let's pray together. Father, we bow. We bow before you and begin to prepare our hearts for this table. We heard the Apostle Paul say in the passage that we heard read earlier in the service that we are to examine ourselves. We're to take this, take this bread and this fruit of the vine with seriousness because it represents the new covenant. It represents your work on the cross after living a sinless life not deserving that death, but going to that death to bear our sins, all that believe. But God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Father, I pray this morning for men and women here that don't know you. I pray they will consider these elements as they pass by them, that these are the representative of your body on the cross, your blood that was shed there. 
that our sins may be forgiven, that we may be given your righteousness to cover us. Fathers, the psalmist said, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable. Lord, as we meditate on this, on this table, Father, may our thoughts be toward you and acceptable in your sight. Thank you, Father. And this morning, as we prepare to take this element, you continue to pray. The elements will be passed. You hold both of them and we'll eat and we'll drink together as one. If you're here and don't know Christ, I ask you to let the elements pass you by. But think about it. If you're here and a believer, this is something we're commanded to do until he comes again. If you're here and our guest and you're a member of a church member in good standing of your church at home we invite you to join in this with us this is the Lord's table not our table so join with us in celebrating his death his burial and his resurrection